Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. Many of the things that we think of in terms of human health affect animals as well. Some of the diseases that affect animals affect humans and vice versa. On today's program, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Dr. Mike Walsh of UF's Aquatic Animal Health Program at the College of Veterinary Medicine. We're going to talk about some of the ways in which animals are just like us. We're going to talk about some One Health concepts. We're going to talk about animal behaviors, some of the environment, and the ways that we are all tied together. We'll also take your calls. Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, host of the program, and I'm happy to welcome back to the show from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Mike Walsh. We're going to be talking about something today that I do hope you'll find as interesting as I find it because it is such a big topic, but one that is truly fascinating, the connection between people and animals in ways that maybe we haven't considered uh, in the past as much as we should have. We're going to talk a bit about the One Health concept. We're going to talk also about the ways in which our animal friends are like us, and some of the ways may surprise you. So welcome back to the program, Dr. Walsh. I'm really glad to have you here to talk about uh, this subject, which, again, as I said, is is really fascinating. Maybe you can help us at the at the top of the show here um, to maybe explain in your words, broadly speaking, what this concept of of one health is, where it came from. Well, the concept of one health is really a realization of the similarities that occur between all the different areas in the planet and all the different species. So it's really the interconnected relationship between land and water, between animals and people. And it's not just regional. Florida has a lot of potential things that we need to be concerned about, but it's also global. So if you're looking at a one health concept from the human perspective, it might be diseases that are important to us that can move between animals to people and then be transported around the planet. But it's not just infectious diseases. It's also about things that are added to the environment, things that people call toxins that might be added to the environment that affect an environment on land, transfer to your drinking water, transfer to the rivers, transfer to the ocean. And it's really how we look at the planet's relationship because everything affects all of us at the same time. Is this concept new or has this work been underway for some time? The One Health concept has been simmering in a lot of corners and a lot of places for a long time. A lot of very brilliant researchers recognized long ago that you can't just study one little enclave of information. You really need to look past that and see how each one impacts the other. Over time, it's been building up through a number of different groups within the university in a number of different areas. And the Environment Emerging Pathogens Institute, we have uh, a number of colleges on board, IFAS, wildlife ecology, they've all been delving into parts of One Health. And if you pull all those together, which is the university's perspective now, we'll be able to make such amazing improvements and such rapid progress that we'll be able to make a big, big difference in terms of looking at this concept from now on. One can imagine a time in the past in which people lived 
separated by not just distances, but without the ability to, to readily communicate quickly with one another. And in environments which differed so much so that someone living in a tropical climate, seeing different animals, experiencing different phenomena in terms of health, would live in a completely different atmosphere from someone living in a cold place with completely different animals, with different kinds of problems, environmental or health or what have you. And the ability to communicate um, that things were connected would not have existed, right? I mean, because the people were not connected and therefore the ability to take larger ideas about the interconnectedness of animals and people just wasn't possible. But we live now in a world in which it, the world has become a lot smaller in, in many ways. I think many of us would recognize this. Oh, very true. The ability to transport by ship, by plane, to get around through a number of different transportation capabilities is now transferring many things that we don't necessarily want to be transferred. There's a lot of interest in invasive species, looking at biodiversity, how species coming into Florida are displacing other species that were naturally here. So we can not only transport disease processes, we can transport animals, plants, disasters such as the um, over in Japan, we've seen materials come all the way across to California that then carry things that normally California wouldn't be exposed to. And it only takes, in some cases, one event like that. But it, when it's constant, you see a lot of change that occurs. And we have to be aware of that change. And it's at the university level that we're capable of pulling a lot of this information together with all these different specialties working together. That'll allow us to be able to tie a lot of these answers together as well. The uh, incident in Japan you're talking about is probably the earthquakes, mm -hmm. uh, the tsunami, and the big nuclear disaster that they had. And, of course, this is something that 100 years ago or more wouldn't have uh, affected people as much. Of course, in Japan, the earthquake and the tsunami would have, but the nuclear accident that was the result debris reaching, like you said, across the ocean, um, we would have in the past, of course, always had, say, large volcanic eruptions that would have sent ash and debris all around the world and would have affected animals and people in places far afield from the actual natural disaster itself. And, of course, in the past, without the help of communication tools, without the help of uh, scientific measurements and whatnot, maybe no one would have recognized the effects that these events far away would have on people in distant lands. Well, that's very true. If you, if you just look at Florida from another perspective, too, our, our group, for instance, is involved in looking at aquatic ecosystem health. So we specialize in looking at the water around us. We partner with the people who are doing terrestrial animal health. So we have a zoo group who does terrestrial animal health at the college. We have an aquatic-based group. Then we partner with the other groups. So as we, we make our inroads in our area, we're more, we're more able to share that information with the various groups that we are now partnering with in One Health to take that and make the connections between people and animals. And what we are then challenged with is how do we get the word out to people who can also support us and one of the things we're trying to do is we put together a speaker series called Just Like Us to try to illustrate some of this on a very basic level. How are we so similar to people and for the most and, – and between the animals? And for the most part, what we're using is a lot of the aquatic species. So we're going to touch on things like 
exercise in animals and look at what a dolphin needs when it's in a managed environment or what happens in the wild that's different from a dolphin in a managed environment. Or we can also look at what they eat. How do they deal with nutrition? How do they deal with obesity? So animals in managed environments are a little different than wild environments, and yet both of those are very similar to what affects us with those same topics. We'll talk about some of these presentations uh, throughout the program, but off the bat, I think it's probably helpful to mention that these will be taking place at the villages, correct? Correct. We've, we've partnered with the villages to bring in a number of speakers on a number of different topics. It tends to happen every Thursday. And we, we actually have one of them coming up that's being put on by Dr. Greg Gray, who is an amazing resource in terms of One Health and how it affects you. So he's going to actually be speaking on Monday at the Villages at 4 o'clock. Then we'll have a number of different other topics that will cover anything from grieving for your pet and humans, uh, pet homelessness, exercise, sleep problems in animals and in people to try to give them that flavor of how similar we are so that they become supporters of what we're trying to achieve with this down the road. And for those of you who may be interested, you can learn more at thevillageslifelongcollege.com. You mentioned, Dr. Walsh, that you are involved with the UF Aquatic Animal Health Program. Correct. Everyone knows, of course, that the oceans take up such a huge portion of the Earth's surface, right? There's vast stretches of, of ocean. We have gigantic seas. We have huge lakes. So many animals uh, on Earth live in the water. I don't know the, the percentage of animals that live in the water versus on land, but definitely the oceans are a huge part of the Earth's ecosystem. And also one that I suspect is very vulnerable to changes wrought by humans. True. Um, in fact, we're involved quite a bit now with our group looking at what's been going on with a lot of Florida species. Uh, over the last number of months, we've lost over 1,000 dolphins down the east coast of the United States from a disease process called morbillivirus. Well, for humans, morbillivirus is measles. So it's actually a similar disease, and it has some similar potential effects. And every 20 or 30 years, it appears to be able to go into a population and decimate it. And currently, we have a, a lab that's here within the university that's doing much of that research in terms of how that morbillivirus is functioning, the comparisons between other morbilliviruses or measles-like diseases that have occurred. So we're comparing animals from the Gulf to animals on the East Coast to other animals that have been affected by this. And it's not just dolphins. It's crossed over into other species of whales. And so now we're seeing that there's a connection there that these diseases not only affect the dolphin, but they affect animals that they come in contact with. If you look at manatees as another example, we've had two major die-offs this last year. One from a known cause on the West Coast, red tide that people may be familiar with, and one from an unknown cause. So we have a number of projects working in partnership with the state try to see if we can help figure out why were manatees dying on the East Coast from some unknown potential toxin or infectious disease that might come back and also affect us. I lived my whole life in Florida, grew up in St. Petersburg, where red tide is something that every once in a while you'd hear about, and it would be a big local story because in Florida, of course, 
Many people spend a lot of time recreating out on the water, of course, um, for fishermen and other uh, people who enjoy the sport of fishing. Being out on the water is kind of a way of life. And red tide outbreaks are naturally occurring, I gather, but extremely disruptive both to the animals and the people who enjoy being out on the water. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this in terms of its health consequences, what it means to the animals and the people, and and how it's being studied kind of around the world, because it probably isn't just a local Florida phenomenon. No, it's not. The idea of having algae produce a bloom that has a toxic effect is known in many, many areas. It occurs on our, on both our coast. The difficulty that people are looking at or the concern, and this goes back to the one health concept, is if we're adding to the nutritional amount of material that goes into the waterways that allows the algae to overgrow, then that's where we need to potentially make some changes. So there's a lot of research going on in terms of nutrient additions to the environment. And it seems to be occurring much more often. It seems to be occurring to where it's, it's harming the manatee on a fairly regular basis now. So if you look at the number of animals lost from some of these, it seems to be accelerating and it seems to be going up in numbers. So controlling the cofactors, yeah. the things that might be involved that, that may be getting out into the waterways from us may be very important because it not only hurts the manatee, it hurts the sea turtles, it hurts the dolphins, it kills the local fisheries. It can actually produce a, a total lack of oxygen once that algae has a problem and dies to where you end up with a dead zone as a result of it. Perhaps some of these cofactors I think that you, you're referring to might be fertilizers and runoff from fertilizers that make makes its way to streams, creeks that make the way to rivers and then to, say, the Gulf of Mexico or to the Atlantic Ocean. And these fertilizers, the same fertilizers that have the effect of making your lawn beautiful and green, have the effect of making algae beautiful and green and strong, right? Very true. Very true. So that gives it the chance to overgrow and affect the whole ecosystem. And again, you come back to this, all that's tied into you affect it at the lower levels. The animals take in the grasses or take in the small fish. Then it affects the animals who are at the top of the food chain. And if this continues to become more common and it's spreading, which it appears to be in, in many areas, we need to be able to pull this one health concept into play to where we can look at all the different cofactors are involved and all the different options that we might use to approach this problem. Are some of these problems so gradual that they may escape notice? It's probably that some of them escape notice over time until they become obvious based on a loss of animals, perhaps, something that makes sense to people or something that they care about. It's also something that we're all busy And we don't realize that, as you were saying, having that nice green lawn has side effects that you don't realize. If you happen to put out your fertilizer and then you have a heavy rain and it washes it away, then that gives an option for that to go other places. And it doesn't just occur on the coast. It also occurs when you're dealing with ponds. If you fertilize a pasture and that material runs into the pond, you can get algae overgrowth even on on these land-based ponds. There are... uh even bodies of water locally, which I believe have kind of suffered uh, an overgrowth of some kinds of um, uh, species of plants that kind of 
cover more of the water than really should be covered by any kind of plants. Uh, I don't know the names of these plants, of course, uh, but if you go around even to, say, Lake Alice here on the University of Florida campus, you will have seen, at least in some years ago, tons of um, uh, some sort of plants that are growing up through the water and covering a lot of the shore of the lake. And it got to the point where the university was having a special kind of equipment come in where it would just kind of pull this up. But it would be an ongoing process because they'd pull it up, it would regrow fairly quickly, and they'd have to be out there doing it again. And this might seem just somewhat superficial to someone walking along Lake Alice, kind of just looking at, oh, it's it's a pretty lake. Uh, but if that is happening here, perhaps these sorts of things are happening elsewhere. And once you compound that over many, many bodies of water and consider what the potential effects are thereof, what what does that mean on a bigger scale, right? It becomes much bigger than just one local little thing. It does, and it affects the potential for us to be able to harvest fish that we utilize as a protein source. It has a number of large, large factors depending on the size of the body of water and what it's feeding into. There's a lot of concern for our Indian River Lagoon system on the East Coast because of the various factors that have been added to that water body over time. And there is currently a die-off of dolphins in the Indian River Lagoon from an unknown cause but a lot of the animals look like they're starving and they're coming in very, very thin. So it doesn't look like an acute toxic event or an acute infectious disease event. There's something else that's contributing to it. And they haven't really figured that one out yet. But there is a great deal of concern in terms of where is the Indian River Lagoon heading in, as a productive body of water? Will it still be productive? And if we don't potentially look at all those factors, and that's, again, the strength of a university system, we have so many experts and so many brilliant people who can look at all these different layers of the One Health system and contribute to the eventual answers and choices for what we can do. To the extent that some of these problems are made worse by human participation, for the most part, this is not intentional. These are unintended consequences of human behaviors and, and human um, activity. What, what does the One Health concept offer in terms of a kind of suggested path forward in terms of minimizing some of these negative consequences of what otherwise are not intended to be negative actions or activities? Well, the One Health concept offers layers of expertise. If I'm interested or my background because of where I put my energy is in aquatic animals, and it might be more, let's say, limited to sea turtles, dolphins, whales, manatees, you need someone who's studying those groups that are also in that same body of water that you have no expertise in. So you'll want somebody who studies invertebrates. You'll want study somebody who studies bottom-dwelling organisms. You want someone who looks at water quality. You want someone who looks at the plants. You want someone who looks at nutrient relationships. So you need a very large team pulling all this information together because if you're missing one piece of that, you, you may not find the answer. If you go out and you say, okay, the dolphins are all thin who are dying, then what's happening with the fisheries? So now you have to go back to the people in fisheries and say, can you help us? Are you studying all these species that we know they eat 
is there a problem with production? And if there's a problem with production, you may have to go back to the people who study grasses, the people who study algae, because they're feeding off of those things. So there's just too much for one person or one group to know. And if we're not working together on that, which is the big focus now, is pulling everybody together, we'll have a hard time figuring things out. We'll come out with a lot of interesting information, but we won't come out with a lot of purposeful answers. So here I think you've hit on something that is is important to think about, and that is that even in a place like Florida, so many different animals and different kinds of animals are aquatic animals, or at least animals that spend a good portion of their lives in and near the water. You take Florida alone, and there are several different species of marine mammals. There are reptiles that live in the Florida environment, of course, our uh, beloved alligators. We've got amphibians, so your frogs and toads and, and whatnot. Um, you got fish. And all of these are studied probably by different kinds of scientists, right? Different kinds of scientists and just scientists with, with different priorities. Um, most of what we often do is to be able to first, in looking at a problem, figure out what's going wrong. So you're documenting degradation. The one health concept is really towards finding solutions. So you're not just documenting the degradation, you're then pulling all that information together from all the various researchers at all the various levels. You then pull in social scientists, you pull in modelers, you pull in people who work on coastal relationships and you say, here's what we think we have at, at this stage. What can we look at doing about it? How do we change the general public's relationship to this? Because if they don't recognize it as a problem, if they don't realize these simil similarities of being just like us, then it doesn't make as much sense to them. It's not a priority from their standpoint. And that's what's really important. If the public is not behind the information, the best information possible that can even give you an answer, it often doesn't go as far as it needs to go. So we have to be able to make that partnership with the public as well as making those internal partnerships that we're doing within the university system. That's a fantastic point because for many of us, science is complex, right? I mean, certainly trained scientists uh, do this every day. Professionally, people like me read what we can read maybe in the newspaper. We may see some articles online. Perhaps we'll watch a documentary or two, and we will walk away with still just a very cursory understanding of, of what is happening. And for scientists like yourself who are doing research, who are teaching, who are in communication regularly with other scientists studying the same things, and then you tie that together with other scientists who are studying different things but finding similar kind of results, similar um, concerns, you still have the extra step of getting the public to understand. And that probably poses its own kind of challenge, right? I've talked to, to scientists before who feel very comfortable discussing amongst their colleagues the science that they're that they're studying, that they're really glad to be researching, but trying to convey that to a general public is 
is challenging, probably to say the least. Yeah, and it doesn't take a very big miscalculation to probably lose the option for doing a better job. And I guess as an example of this, this series we're talking about, when we set it up, we didn't use grabber-type titles. We used more scientific titles. And what you get out of that is five to six people coming to the talk who are very interested in anything. But you also need to be able to get their attention by having something that they really relate to or they consider a priority. So if you tell them you're working with dolphins, you'll get more people showing up. If you tell them you're looking at One Health or aquatic ecosystem health, they will not. So it is a challenge for us to be able to position this in such a way that it has some appeal to be able to get their attention, to get their interest, to then get their support. Otherwise, we've got a great product and poor marketing. And marketing is important. So what we've done is to change the marketing aspect to be able, on this series, hopefully to be able to get people more interested. We've got to go beyond the scientific titles and go to what's going to matter to you. So we're going to take a short break here, Dr. Walsh. But when we come back, I do want to talk about some of this uh, concept uh, of One Health as it relates to these discussions that, that we have underway. I'd like to remind our listeners that our number here is 352-392-8989. If you'd like to join the conversations, we may take some calls here in the second half of the program. My name is Dana Hill, and I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Walsh from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. You're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on Florida's 89.1. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill, and I am speaking today with my guest from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Mike Walsh, and we're talking about the One Health concept, but really the way that animals and humans are similar, the way that we are affected by many of the same things environmentally, um, in terms of health, and so forth. Uh, we're going to resume our conversation uh, in just a second, Dr. Walsh, but let's go to the phones now. Let's talk to Barbara in Beverly Hills. Barbara, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. Barbara, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. Yes, hello. Hello there. Um, I've been listening to your uh, wonderful programs uh, for quite a few years, and today um, I thought I might be able to add something to the conversation about the um, unexplained illnesses of the manatees. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And um, I've been in um, Citrus County for about 10 years, but previous to that I lived in uh, Martin County which um, is, is connected to the Indian River Lagoon. They have had a pollution problem there for at least 20 years, serious pollution. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I voted for a sales tax increase to address that, which, of course, never happened. Um, but I feel that the death of the manatees on the East Coast is primarily due to... to um, man-made pollution. And, and, and Barbara, of course, um, many people will know that manatees are vulnerable to other human activities, say um, boating. Uh, I remember years ago, 
hearing in the news frequently uh, that a manatee would have been struck by a boat propeller. And then uh, the legislature and, and local um, municipalities would pass ordinances to kind of reduce the speed, um, and that reduced the incidence of manatee injury. Uh, but nevertheless, there are still activities that um, unintentionally uh, affect uh, affect manatees. Probably nobody's intentionally polluting with the effort of, I want to harm manatees. But No, and also the dolphins. The dolphins and, right. in the Indian River Lagoon, yes. Yeah. Um, um, they, I mean, I have pictures from the Stewart News um, back 15, 20 years ago of a, a plume of, of black sludge moving down the Indian River Lagoon. And that's not a red tide, and it's it's... It's from all of the. Uh, it's from civilization. Let's face it. Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Um, and if, what the control is, I, I don't know. It, I, I really. Well, I really appreciate the the phone call, Barbara. Um, it, Barbara brings up a point, and and it is relevant this week uh, as as much as any anyone paying attention to the news throughout the week would have heard about the chemical spill in West Virginia that leaked into, I believe it's the Elk River, and then the water has not been potable until just a couple days ago, and a lot of scientists are studying it, making sure, trying to make sure that it would be safe for human consumption. Now, of course, uh, the uh, animal uh, involvement in all of this is probably not made the news as much, but of course, anytime you've got pollution going into a body of water, there are going to be uh, casualties uh, among the animal population. Barbara mentioned pollution in the Indian River and how that affects manatees and, and dolphins. And you've um, certainly studied uh, manatees and dolphins. How how vulnerable are these marine mammals to water quality problems? Well, I would think any species that inhabits a closed environment, which is basically what the Indian River Lagoon is for the most part, is you're adding things to it. If there's no way for it to flush out, which is what happens in some systems, then it's going to accumulate. Uh, as she's saying, things have been accumulating for a long period of time. The difficulty is when we make assumptions as to what the problem may be or what the real information is as to what's causing a problem. If you look at toxins, they can build up very, very slowly in terms of reaching their effect on the animal, or they can be very acute depending on the type of toxin, what's the level of the toxin they take in, over what period of time do they take it in. So it's really hard, and this is the difficulty in terms of being able to see what are the real toxins that are a problem. Is it industrial-based? Is it natural-based? Are the ecotoxins, or and what is the effect? Because you may find them present in the blood. If you if you check your blood, you'll find a lot of things that are potentially toxic, that you may not be seeing problems at that stage. But now, if trying to figure out just because you find them in the blood, is it a problem? Because for years, everybody said, "Oh my goodness, look at all of the different toxins in this dolphin's blood," but they're reproducing, they're living a fairly long life. How big of a problem is it, or when is it a problem? So simply having an indicator of an issue is not the same thing as actually having answers that you're going to need. And that's where, again, the university-type system with all of its experts can look at this at many different levels and try to put those pieces together. Otherwise, it's just information unless you see a direct effect. And a direct effect would, for example, be a dead manatee or a dead dolphin, in which case that would 
get the attention of researchers, correct? Well, it would be more likely that the attention would be given based on a unusual number of dead manatees or dead dolphins, and that's called an unusual mortality event, or UME. And we've had three UMEs going on at the same time, one for dolphins in Indian River Lagoon, one for manatees in Indian River Lagoon, and one for dolphins off the coast that are migrating down. So they've been dying from New York all the way down to Florida now over the last number of months, and over a 1,000 of them have died. So that grabs people's attention, but in spite of an amazing amount of effort in some cases looking for a toxin or infectious disease, you don't always diagnose them. It may be a 50% answer rate on some areas because you're still missing what the problem may be. There's hundreds to thousands of potential natural toxins out there. The original dolphin die-off from the measles-like virus, Morbilli virus, back in the 80s, part of it was misjudged because they found other things in the larger whales that died, and they thought it was a natural toxin. But now that we have better tests, now that we have a laboratory here, uh, the Wavdo Lab, which is wildlife-based, they're actually able to show, looking back, what's really going on. So we can take the new tools for looking at viruses and for doing PCR and looking at sequencing of genomes and actually see what happened back then and compare it to now. With these types of unusual mortality events, do researchers like yourself, do scientists feel an added degree of pressure to kind of get to the heart of it quickly? Uh, because these these events may may come on suddenly, as you said, they may just kind of appear out of nowhere, uh, and they would make the news, certainly, if you suddenly have uh, an incident in which dozens of manatees are dying at a time. Uh, that's going to make the newspapers, the public is going to be aware of it, and scientists, of course, who, who really love the animals that they're studying, and I doubt anybody like yourself would get into this if you didn't really care about these animals, you, you want to you understand it to see if there's a way to prevent it, if that makes sense? So, yeah, to see if there's a way to prevent it or mitigate it or change it. Um, using the manatee example of the unusual mortality event, in the middle of it, you don't know how long it's going to go on. You, this may go on for a year. If that's true, you could have such a damaging effect on the number of manatees in that portion of the coast, in like Brevard County, for instance, that it would take them decades to, to repair that. So there is a lot of pressure to try to figure it out. You try to stretch into as many areas as possible. There are toxin projects still going on. There were projects looking at the change in what they were eating. Because of an algal bloom a few years ago, that damaged the grasses. That had the manatees shifting from eating more seagrass to eating more algaes. Since that's not their typical thing to do, they're just hungry, they're going to eat things that are there, they're eating things that potentially they weren't meant to eat. Other people said, well, if that's true, then why aren't the sea turtles dying? Well, it turns out sea turtles are very picky about what algae they eat. So we, we had to go back to the sea turtle biologists and say, well, what would they be eating at this point? And when they saw the list of things coming out of the manatee, they commented, wow, okay, sea turtles are a bit more picky than the manatees are being, so they wouldn't even eat that. But is that a problem? Does it have a toxic principle that we're not aware of? The only way we diagnose the toxins from some aspects is we have to have a test for it. And if you only have two dozen tests, but there are hundreds of toxins, you can easily miss that. And it takes a lot of support. It takes a lot of financial support as well to be able to develop new toxin tests, and if there's not a need, you're not likely to get those tests developed. 
Speaking of uh, developing kind of new tests, new procedures, can we talk a little bit about your background in aquatic animal health and maybe some of the changes that have been uh, underway since you kind of entered the field and, and maybe your role in this? Well, at least you're not asking my age. <laughs> well, I, I got started, actually, I graduated from a residency here in wildlife and zoo medicine. Uh, about a year and a half later, I got the job as veterinarian at SeaWorld in Orlando. There was a lot of being done there with wildlife, and that was one of the things that attracted me to the job. I spent 20 years trying to figure out some of these problems. Um, and each time you run into something, you first try to figure out, how do I keep an animal from dying from it? And then after about, eh, it depends on the person, three to five years, you go from reaction to judgment-based treatment to prevention. And in looking at how to deal with some of these very, very complicated problems, I realized after being there, and actually when I first got there, within a month or so, I had to do a general anesthetic procedure on a dolphin, and no one there had ever done it before. So I reached back to the university for support. I brought down anesthesiologists and surgeons, and we were successful in actually getting animals through procedures that no one had done except for the Navy back in the 60s. Again, that was based on this team effect this one health type approach. I needed someone who had the machines. I needed someone who could monitor them. I needed someone who knew how to handle tissues and could get them through the surgical relationships. So we did this with dolphins. We did this with walrus as well. We did it with manatees. We did the first manatee anesthesia based on utilizing the university-based system and seeing the strength of the interrelationship of expertise that you could apply to a problem. People who um, are familiar with the university sort of system um, will know that there are many, many people involved in, in all of this. Um, there are hundreds of, of different kinds of uh, researchers and um, scientists who study different things. And, and when collaboration is possible, you can achieve far more than you could just individually working, working on your own. Um, many of these uh, developments that have occurred, things like anesthesia in dolphins, uh, now are not probably as unusual as they might have once been? Actually, they're still a little unusual. Really? It takes people to get over a fear factor, and there are a lot of myths that were related to the idea that dolphins were so smart they had to think about each breath, and that was really people that back in the 60s and 70s didn't have the right drugs for inducing anesthesia. They overdosed them in some cases. This myth developed about their inability to breathe on their own, which we had to challenge that, and we had to ignore it to a certain degree. So some things have progressed, and the tendency is for us in some cases to work on our little enclaves, and the progress seems like it's dramatic, but it's probably not as much as you can get if you're working as a, in a team-based concept like One Health. There, there's a saying, I think it goes something like, um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to make a difference, go together. Mm. And that's what the One Health concept is about. You're working with people from the Health Science Center who are studying human disease. You're working with people from EPI. You're working with people from Whitney Laboratory, Sea Grant, uh, Wildlife Ecology, IFAS, and, and dozens more that are all out there making some amazing strides. And when you pull them together on a concept like this, the potential is is tremendous, and that's what we're looking forward to. I wonder if some of this is possible only now in an era in which we have 
easy electronic communication, if that makes sense. Perhaps once upon a time, scientists working in their own fields may have published papers um, in journals that would have maybe only been read or even, even really accessible to other scientists working in almost the exact same field. And now um, that it is not difficult in any way, shape, or form for, say, you here in Florida to communicate with someone um, in your own field or even in a related but not entirely the same field in Australia or Japan or India or South America, right? And, and now scientists have the ability to collaborate across great distances very quickly. And this both speeds up and even in some ways makes possible this kind of One Health approach. I think that's very, very true. Um, we work with people as an odd example in Japan to help us with development of the tail for the dolphin that has the prosthetic because they had done it for another animal over there. So someone who's been through an issue before can contribute such speed and advancement in what you're trying to do. And that in incorporated a partner like um, the company that makes the rubber. It incorporates then some relationship between us, uh, an aquarium in the Far East, and veterinarians that are outside of that area. So yes, it, it, y things have gotten much better in terms of information. And a lot of that is overcoming your silos to where if you're afraid that someone's going to steal your information, it makes it more difficult. If you're collaborating and you realize that I'm going to be able to move ahead so much more quickly by doing this versus just being the only expert out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there you get into some human psychology, too, uh, because, of course, we we all want to um, receive credit for our, our own ideas and we want to um, be considered good at what we do. But we also want to really accomplish something. And not that the two have to be mutually exclusive, uh, but we probably need to recognize when we can achieve more, as you say, together. We can go farther together. And you're really here, again, as part of the, the strength of this university approach. And the reason why I came back to it after being in the other field for 20 years was I realized I could make a bigger difference by training 30 people on what I learned over the last 20 years so they can step off and do it much more quickly. So I can make sure that there's always going to be good marine animal veterinarians that are out in the field. And that goes back to this idea of you give away much more. What, what I was really impressed with in coming to a university system was the number of people that were willing to sacrifice even their own needs to be able to teach someone else how to do something and allow them to move more quickly ahead. That's really what drew me back to it. Because what I experienced in being here the first time, I knew it was collaboration. I knew I could find experts that could help me move ahead quicker, and I wanted to be part of that. And then you come back, and you have the added um, years and years of experience from working out sort of in the field as you did, working directly with animals on a regular daily basis. And then you come back, and you're able to kind of share your experiences and your knowledge with students, which, of course, is the goal of a university, a college of veterinary medicine. Correct. Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about some of these um, lectures, these presentations that are, again, going to be at the villages over the next several weeks. Uh, there are going to be 
um, discussions about what animals eat and how it affects their health. And again, a, a kind of one in conjunction, what people eat and how it affects their health. There's one about animal exercise and musculoskeletal disease and then human exercise. There's one about pets and humans uh, and grieving for lost companions. Now, this one is interesting to me uh, because anyone who has lost a pet uh, knows how difficult it is. It is it's really challenging. Our, our pets are members of the family. Um, and uh, I'd, I probably had never given any thought to the way um, animals kind of look at these sorts of things. Um, in fact, I've even spoken to a, a psychologist um, who sort of posits that animals don't have the same kind of consciousness that, that human beings have. Um, and for example, that um, our dogs and cats aren't aware that we as humans have consciousness, um, and which was I'd never even thought about before, um, but uh, kind of changed the way that I looked at it. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, we we are really closely tied with with these animals who who live with us. There's another one about neurologic diseases in dogs, and then sleep study and abnormalities in people. Now these are these are things that I just would have never put together before. Like the way that sleep affects animals and the way that sleep affects people is being connected in any way. Well, it, it hopefully helps us again to be able to make that bridge, that relationship between the species by people realizing that these things are so shared. And part of the goal here is also these are common problems for us. We don't do a good job in managing our nutrition, partially because we're no longer doing it the way we evolved for. We have things available that were never available before. The wild animal relationship on food is that I stock up when there are shortcomings in the environment. So that's why I put on weight. And during the lean times, I use that fat to be able to deal with things. Now we have food available all the time. So what we evolved to do in the past is is being affected by a difference in terms of what's available. So our evolution is no longer matching our availability. And if you look at things like the exercise aspects, if you as an older dolphin in a facility start sitting around, you're not going to be as healthy. You can't respond when there's a problem. You, you don't have the stamina if there's a disease process that gets involved, and you have more trouble. So we've been able to actually put in, working with Clearwater Marine Aquarium, basically with a treadmill for dolphins. So, and then utilizing people from Woods Hole up on the northeast, we're going to have these data packs attached to them to see what they're doing going back and forth in the water, how much energy they're expending, why does this dolphin only eat 12 pounds and puts on a lot of weight versus this dolphin that's active. It's that idea of metabolism, energy needs. So we'll hopefully see some more parallels in that. How does a dolphin treadmill work? Is it water that moves and the dolphin just has to swim in order to kind of keep up? Basically, that yes. There, there are systems that are out there for people that can get called lazy river systems. There's a river flow system that basically has a large pump that shoots out a large plume of water. What we've done is gotten with the, those people and said, we're going to need two pumps and we're going to need it to be different in terms of how it comes out. So we're in the process now of just getting the animals used to sitting in this flowing water and then we'll get to the studies later on to see how we can help other animals that are in similar situations and also hopefully help point out where some of the issues are with people and people will identify with the animal and then see, okay, I can be affected too and I can do this. Getting people to identify with 
animals is probably crucial in order for the One Health concept to really work, right? Not necessarily thinking like animals in terms of trying to put ourselves in the place of the animal and asking, well, what would, you know, a horse do or what would a dolphin do? But just in terms even of considering animals as being part of this world in which we live, as a human being, it's pretty easy to not think about that. Maybe we don't think about where our food comes from. Maybe we don't think about the animals that inhabit the environment around us. But this all matters. And the One Health concept is, I imagine, a way to get people to consider this. I think so. I, th- I think you can utilize the animal side to get people to feel invested in it. Um, as you say, everybody has their way of looking at things. And there's a, a general, you could say there's kind of a general rule for humans is that people make decisions based on what they know. If we can give them 90% of the information, they'll make better decisions. They'll still make decisions with only 10% of the information. So that's the goal of education is we're there to help people be their best. And that's what a university does, is to be able to give people options to be their best. And it's lifelong. That's why we hooked up with the villages. They have a lifelong learning center with a lot of people who are very interested in always learning. And that's what we try to promote, is this should be learning throughout your life. You don't stop after college. And I hope, certainly, that I never stop learning as long as I live, even though I hope to never have to go back to school as long as I live either. Uh, The information about uh, the lectures is at thevillageslifelongcollege.com. Dr. Walsh, uh, thank you very much for coming back and speaking to us. The the One Health and Your Health um, presentations are coming up. That sounds very intriguing. And your work at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine uh, is probably helping a lot of people understand this better. I want to say thank you to Richard Drake here in the control room at WUFTFM. Thank you to Sarah Carey and Nancy Hamilton. I'm Dana Hill. We'll be back next week with another edition of Animal Airwaves Live.